This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have a very exciting episode in store for you today. A little bit about diabetes, a little bit about chronic kidney disease, but even the chronic kidney disease is kind of related to diabetes. Anyway, John, what article do you have up for us first? Yeah, so the article that I picked is Weekly Icodec versus Daily Glargine in Type 2 Diabetes Without Previous Insulin by Rovenstock et al., published in the New England Journal July 2023. And what was the research question? Here they wanted to know what is the efficacy and safety of once-weekly insulin compared with daily glargine. And why did this catch your eye? Well, you and I know that insulin can be an important part of treatment for patients with type 2 diabetes, but a lot of people don't like getting regular injections and often they're looking at, you know, basal bolus regimens with multiple daily injections. Uh, Insulin Icodec, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, provides basal insulin coverage for a full week after a single injection. There's some phase 2 data that showed compared with daily glargine, similar rates of glycemic control and low rates of hypoglycemia. And so this study is some phase three data looking at the efficacy and safety of a once weekly long acting insulin. Yeah, this is a really impressive study. So um, how did they go about designing this study? Uh, so this was a 78 week randomized open label treat to target trial. It included 143 sites in 12 countries. Patients were aged 18 years of age or older with type two diabetes, not previously treated with insulin. They had to have an A1C between seven and 11% and a BMI of 40 or less. Now, when it came to the treatment arms, patients were randomized one-to-one to receive weekly insulin Icodec or once daily injections of insulin glargine. The starting doses were 70 units weekly for Icodec and 10 units daily for Glargine. Insulin doses were then adjusted to reach a pre-breakfast glucose level of 4.4 to 7.2. At pre-trial, non-insulin diabetes treatments were continued after randomization, so that could include things like metformin, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, but sulfonylureas and any kind of glycolinide were discontinued. Each patient was also given a glucose meter along with a double blinding of a continuous glucose monitoring device as part of some of the other outcomes for the trial. Uh, Now, when it came to the primary outcome, what they were looking at was the absolute change in A1C from baseline to week 52, so pretty simple. There were a number of secondary outcomes, including the percentage of time spent within a glycemic target range of 3.9 to 10. And then safety, of course, one of the big ones was episodes of hypoglycemia, but other adverse events were also documented. All right, so open label randomized trial of either daily long-acting Glargine or weekly insulin Icodec, and the primary outcome was the absolute change in hemoglobin A1C from baseline to week 52. Is that right? Yeah, you got it. Cool. And what did the patients look like? So 1,192 patients were screened, uh, and ultimately 492 were randomized to each group. There were more men in the ICODEC group, you know, 60 versus 54%. Uh, Age was about 59 years. The average weight was 84 kilos. Most patients had a diabetes for about 11 years, and the average A1C was 8.4%. The majority of patients at baseline, so this was kind of anywhere from 88 to 91%, were on metformin. About 45% were on a sulfonylurea. About 35 to 38% on an SGLT2 and about 17 to 19% on a GLP1. Uh, The majority of the patients were white, 64 to 67%. All right. And what did they find? So at week 52, 
the mean A1C was 6.9% in the Icodec group and 7.1% in the Glargine group. Uh, the treatment difference was 0.19%, and this confirmed both non-inferiority as well as superiority for Icodec over Glargine. When it came to some of those secondary endpoints, at weeks 48 to 52, those on Icodec spent significantly more time in the target glycemic range compared to those getting daily Glargine. There are other things that they looked at too, you know, change in body mass. So both groups did have some weight gain, but no significant difference between the two groups. It was 2.29 kilos and 1.83 kilos. And then looking at the episodes for hypoglycemia. So there were 226 clinically significant hypoglycemia events that occurred in 61 participants in the ICODEC group compared with 114 events in 66 participants in the Glargine group. There was one episode of severe hypoglycemia compared with seven episodes of uh, severe hypoglycemia in the Glargine group. And then when it came to other adverse events, they were mostly mild or moderate and thought to be unlikely to be related to treatment. All right. And what were the main limitations for this study? Uh, you know, it was a really well-designed clinical trial, I think. One of the things is more just feasibility about being able to reproduce the study design in real life. Uh, they did have weekly check-ins for the first six weeks. So, you know, are you going to be able to do that in a real-world population? I don't know. Other things, you know, patients had diabetes for a long time, and I don't know if they were necessarily optimized on some of the best oral agents before then jumping on insulin. You know, we do try to consider getting patients on oral agents if we can, and if they're then sort of failing glycemic target control, then you'll sort of certainly think about adding insulin on at some point in time. Um, so, you know, I guess you could always wonder, might it have been better just to try to optimize some of their other meds like their SGLT2 or their GLP-1 first? Who knows? You know, the other thing was unrelated per se, but there was this blinded continuous glucose monitoring. Um, but in fact, if a patient went low, they weren't notified about it. So hopefully the patients would not have had any hypoglycemia unawareness, but it also just makes you wonder, given they had access to this continuous blood glucose monitoring, Monitoring, might that data have helped patients to further up or down titrate their insulin dosing to further improve safety profile? Gotcha. Yeah, I think you know this is a really impressive trial. Like one once weekly insulin is non-inferior and statistically superior than once daily. That's impressive. I think you're completely right. How well this is going to generalize from a safety standpoint is probably the number one concern. Uh, to your point, in, in on no planet do we have like weekly check-ins with patients to see how they're tolerating their new any medication. Anyway, what's a take-home point from your standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I think you really said it. Once weekly long-acting insulin led to better long-term control from a glycemic perspective versus glargine. Yeah, and is this practice changing for you? Yeah, I think this is definitely going to be a pretty big game changer. Um, another question though is going to be, what is it going to cost the patient? Uh, because, you know, for some people in different parts of the world, insulin can be prohibitively expensive. And so I guess another concern is, well, what is the price going to be to the patient and is it going to be affordable? No, it will not be is my guess and gut feeling. And you're right, especially in even in the US and in Canada, it's truly criminal what some of these drug companies have done when it comes to the price gouging that occurs with insulin. Anyway, I totally agree. You know, and along those lines, like Banting at Best, as far as I understand, they actually did not get any royalties on the insulin, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Patent. Uh, Patent. Thank you. That's the word on the patent that they put forward. And yes, I get it. Like pharmaceutical companies are finding ways to make better insulin. It's not the stuff that they were using, you know, a hundred years ago, but yeah, the, the price gouging is, is pretty sad. 
Yeah, it's unfortunate because uh, essentially, I think it was Banting and McLeod who were named on the patent. No, uh, Banting refused actually to be named on the patent. I think it was Best and McLeod. They signed it over to the University of Toronto for like $2 under this expectation that this shouldn't be patented and it should be available to the world. Unfortunately, drug companies then took the opportunity of making some small tweaks to the molecule and then they could effectively argue, oh, no, 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 we're patenting a different molecule. It's insulin plus something else. So their good intentions, unfortunately, didn't pan out as anticipated, but uh, more for another day. Yeah, sounds good. This episode has been brought to you by Sault Ste. Marie Physician Recruitment and Retention Program, aka Sioux Med. Uh, there are multiple different elective opportunities for residents or medical students to spend time in the Sioux, as well as locum opportunities in general medicine, surgical specialties, anesthesia, OB, you name it. If you want to learn more, you can email me at mike.fralick at utoronto.ca or message me on Twitter. Uh, so I guess, Mike, what paper do you want to talk about? Yeah, so I'll talk about uh, dipagliflozin and anemia in patients with chronic kidney disease published in Nijem Evidence, uh, not to be confused with Nijem Proper, uh, in May 2023. Okay, great. What was the research question here? Among patients with chronic kidney disease, does dipagliflozin improve hemoglobin levels? Oh, very interesting. Uh, okay, you tell us, why is this important? It's chronic kidney disease and... We know that for patients with severe chronic kidney disease, up to 80% will experience anemia, and that's despite availability of oral iron, IV iron, and EPO-stimulating agents. We know that SGLT2s are really incredible for adults with diabetes, adults with heart failure regardless of diabetes, and now adults with chronic kidney disease regardless of diabetes. And there have been some small secondary analyses that suggest from prior RCTs that SGLT2s indeed increase hemoglobin and hematocrit relative to placebo. Okay, that works for me. How'd they do this study? This was a secondary analysis of the DAPA-CKD trial. The DAPA-CKD trial was an international industry-funded double-blind randomized controlled trial at 386 sites in 21 countries, and that study ran from 2017 to 2020. Uh, for that study, the inclusion criteria were adults age 18 and older, um, a GFR of 25 to 75, and urinary albumin to creatinine ratio of 200 to 5,000 milligrams per gram. Maybe that should say milligrams per day. I'll fact check that. Um, and they had to be on stable doses of ACE or ARB and again, regardless of whether or not they had diabetes, exclusion criteria were uh, patients with type 1 diabetes, polycystic kidney disease, uh, lupus nephritis, or ankyovasculitis. The intervention was DAPA, 10 milligrams once daily, and that's a pill, and the comparator was placebo. The outcome for this secondary post hoc analysis was all related to anemia-related outcomes, whether defined by hematocrit or hemoglobin, they looked at incident anemia, uh, as well as clinically relevant thresholds for increases in hematocrit, which they defined as a 3% increase, or clinically relevant increases in hemoglobin, uh, 10 units for Canadians, and one unit, I guess, um, uh, if you're uh, in the US and listening to our show, uh, hemoglobin was measured at baseline in the last week of the study, and hematocrit was uh, measured more often at baseline two weeks, two months, four months, and every four months thereafter. Okay, great. Uh, so who's involved in the study? What do the patients look like? 
So they recruited approximately 2,600 patients. Average age was 61. 33% were women. The average GFR was 45. Uh, 60% had type 2 diabetes. Uh, Almost 100% were on an ACE or an ARB. Um, Average hemoglobin at baseline was 127. And average hematocrit at baseline was 42%. Okay. Uh, And so what were the final results? So patients who were randomized to dapagliflozin had higher hematocrit levels as early as week two after starting the drug, and this plateaued at month four. The absolute increase in hematocrit was two percentage points. I'm much more used to thinking about hemoglobin, so uh, let's look at the hemoglobin results. Um, So the mean hemoglobin at the last study visit was 133 for dapagliflozin and 125 per placebo. That's nearly a 10-point difference. And as you can tell, patients in the placebo arm, their hemoglobin fell over time, whereas in the DAPA group, it increased, um, hence this large difference between the two. Also, the risk of incident anemia was twofold higher in the placebo group. And for those without anemia at baseline, they had a lower risk of developing it if they were on dapagliflozin. That's uh, pretty impressive. Okay, so what are some of the limitations here? This is a post hoc secondary analysis of a prior clinical trial. So you have to be very careful because this can essentially be a fishing expedition. And there's a high risk of sort of false positives, right? So um, results that seem to be positive, but maybe it's just from too many analyses being conducted. And also, they sort of predefined, you know, clinically relevant increases in hemoglobin. And they didn't quite reached that point. So for example, they saw an eight point increase uh, overall for DAPA compared to placebo, but they defined clinically significant one of 10 points or different. However, I'm not all that worried about that because for the patient whose hemoglobin went from, I don't know, like 70 to 78, that's definitely clinically significant. They're far less likely to go on to need a transfusion as one example. Okay, fair enough. What was the take on point here? Dapagliflozin improves hemoglobin and reduces the risk of anemia among those with chronic kidney disease who receive DAPA. Dare I ask, yes, secondary analysis, but are we going to see randomized controlled trials of SGLT2 inhibitors used for anemia as an as a indication? I mean, potentially. Like, I certainly see this trial as being practice changing. This is maybe the fourth secondary analysis of a randomized trial. So after the first one, you're kind of like, oh, that's cute. But who knows if it's a real deal? Um, This is the fourth one. The main mechanism is that we know that SGLT2s lead to increased EPO levels, as well as decrease hepcidin. So they decrease inflammation, and they improve mobilization of iron. So At the very least, I think for individuals who have chronic kidney disease, we have a really good reason for them to be on an SGLT2. And this trial highlights how important it is, especially if that patient has anemia. And the vast majority of patients we see with chronic kidney disease have anemia. So for me, I think this is very impressive. And it makes you wonder, to your point, about other studies that might be occurring, you know, testing SGLT2s for individuals who have certain forms of anemia. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I did not know those mechanisms. I, and naively, I was going to say, okay, this is just because we diurese them a little bit and they're hemoconcentrated, but it sounds like there's more to it than just that. Yeah, because the reason we know that there's like some really cool basic science studies. And then also, if it was just that diuretic effect, you'd anticipate it to be sort of going up initially, but then coming down once you reach homeostasis. 
But if you look at the um, sort of, they're not really Kaplan-Meier curves, but if you look at the separation in the curves for hematocrit or hemoglobin, they separate immediately and they stay separated, which is quite cool. I was chatting with um, Dr. Michelle Scholzberg, who you know, and certainly thinking about the utility of SGLT2s for patients who have like MDS, right? Like you have MDS, you're transfusion dependent. Could an SGLT2 inhibitor be an effective way to get those people off of um, transfusions? Because we know like requiring transfusions, like that sucks and it's expensive and it's time consuming and it's associated with all sorts of risks. So it'll be really interesting to see future trials to your point related to anemia and maybe other aspects that we never would have thought of initially with this pretty incredible class of uh, medications. Yeah, these drugs just don't cease to amaze, do they? Uh, They really don't. And like the kind of cool origin story, partial origin story is that, you know, these were isolated from the bark of um, cherry trees. They can also be isolated from the bark of um, apple trees. Um, So so that's where they were sort of first identified this this initial florizin molecule. And it's so incredible to think how far it's come over the past I think we're going on 150 some odd years, but somebody would have to fact check me on that one. Anyway, that feels like good stuff to me. Uh, But what good stuff did you want to talk about, John? Uh, Yeah, separate good stuff. Um, So my wife and I, we had our first baby now three months ago. There's an app and I get no payments from this app, but it's pretty incredible. So to all the uh, new or upcoming parents out there, Huckleberry, my goodness, you can track their diapers, you can track their feeds, you can track their nap schedules. Um, you, You can almost like too much. So we had to back off and kind of stop doing quite as much monitoring with it. But um, so far we have not paid a cent. Check it out if you're looking for it. Cool. That sounds interesting. I will check it out. Uh, Also, I guess a kind of app. Um, I think we talked about this briefly on the roundtable before, but uh, a cool initiative from from, uh, my lab is this program called Trial Files. So you can sort of just Google Trial Files and, and find it, but we'll put it in the show notes. And essentially what Trial Files does is we've created this program called Paper Scrape. It monitors Medline for randomized trials. It's learned what a randomized trial looks like and one that might be relevant to GIM. And then it sends that information to ChatGPT. ChatGPT writes a nice two-sentence summary statement, and it comes out as a twice-monthly email uh, sort of newsletter. So anyway, definitely people should check that out. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. And it's fun too, because I can see the subscribers. So when I check Freilich, let's see, I got a Richard Freilich. I got a Mike Freilich. Nope. (laughs) No John Freilich yet. Uh, Guilty. Can I blame it on a baby? And uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And get one, make sure Arlen gets an account that that, that'll help with our our subscriber numbers, but but soon we're going to be. Um, I was connecting with some hematologists. So we're going to be having a thrombo edition of trial files, so that'll be a, a fun foray to see if it uh, you know is used and is of interest. Nice. I'm registering as we speak. Nice. I will track that as we speak. All right, John. <laughs> uh, take care. I'll see you soon. And, nice to talk. Uh, yeah. Chat again. Thanks, Mike. Bye for now. The rounds table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia-Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Roundstable, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>